0: Well hey Mark uh, James Orr here and I uh, got my co-host Robert Borland from TradQuest podcast and we're super excited to have you on tonight to talk a little bit of bow hunting uh, why don't you uh, go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself and where you live and how you got uh, started in bow hunting uh,
1: My name is Mark Baker I'm 57 years old. Um, I live in Livingston Montana which, uh, is about 50 miles north of Yellowstone Park. I grew up in Paradise Valley, just 10, 15 miles south of here. I shouldn't say I grew up my whole life. Um, since I was 15, we moved to Montana when I was 15. So most of my adult life and all of my hunting life is spent here in Montana and in uh, pretty pretty rural uh, settings. So, uh, you know, I, I learned through the years, the school of hard knocks as far as bow hunting goes. Um, I did start shooting when I was about seven years old. My dad taught me to shoot bows. And, uh, uh, while he was in the service, we kind of lived all over when I was young. 69, we moved to Michigan. We stayed there for about five or six years before we moved to Montana. And while in Michigan, you know, I really got to learn a lot about shooting bows and, uh, and then we moved out here to Montana. Um, didn't really start bow hunting I was about eighteen when I started it was right after my dad uh was killed in a plane crash and uh, I didn't know any other bow hunters uh nineteen seventy eight uh, i I kind of grew up um i would say uh at, as a traditional bow hunter I never really took to a compound I did own a compound for a short time. I'll tell you about that in a minute but I grew up shooting recurves and killed my first few deer with recurves and absolutely fell in love with bow hunting.
0: So you started bow hunting in 1978, 78. Correct. That's awesome. That's the year I was born. (laughs) (laughs) That's very cool.
1: And, you know, I had a lot of great role models. I didn't know it at the time. I, you know, I went to college in Bozeman, um, as a zoology major and, uh, one of my uh, my uh, close friends in college was Bart Schleyer, and I knew he was a bow hunter. We never bow hunted together. We did all kinds of other stuff together, but and there were a lot of great bow hunters in the area that uh, later I became friends, a lot closer friends with once we kind of connected with uh, the bow hunting part of it. But uh, yeah, it a, it's a great place to to grow up and to learn this.
0: Thanks. So you went to college with Mark Hughes instead, huh? Uh,
1: with Bart.
0: Oh, Bart. Bart! Yeah, Bart Bart yep. Slayer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: he was—he's quite an animal. Uh, um, he worked for the—he was actually working on his master's thesis while I was uh, um, just starting off. But he—he uh, he was actually one of the big uh, first big fans of my music, which uh, <laughs> was, was kind of odd, you know. But uh, yeah, he was—he was, he was a, a, a definitely a character.
0: Oh, me and me and Robert both have, uh, your CD in, in our trucks right now. Uh, I listened to it on my way out to a uh, antelope hunt. I just recently got it. It's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Very good. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. a fun thing to do. You know, I never intended, I never planned on doing anything like that. It's just, that's just the way things fall into place, I guess, for, um, one reason or another.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you wouldn't mind, we we might play a a, a little piece of uh, one of your songs uh, on the podcast when we when we put we publish this episode. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. So uh, you said you had a compound for a short stint. And... Yeah. Yeah,
1: about nineteen eighty three or eighty four, um, just about the time my wife and I got married. Uh, um, I got talked into buying a compound. I just shot it. I actually, I shot it off the shelf with the same arrows I was shooting out of my recurve. <laughs> um, no sights, you know, it was uh, with fingers, those, the compounds in those days were nothing like they are now. And, uh, it, it's a different set of muscles. So, uh, you know, growing up shooting recurves my whole life, I, uh, um, and, and this compound was about 70 pounds and it, it was tough for me to break over. I, I killed a, a decent mule deer buck with it opening day. And, uh, I, I, I swore right then I just hated the thing. I
0: I it, awesome.
1: It just uh it disrupted my rhythm that breakover and so I I traded it to a college buddy for a a fly rod and I think I got the better end of the deal.
0: I think you did too. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So uh I, I know that you're, you know, a, a big self-bow guy. Um, how did you transition from laminate recurves and long bows into, uh, building your own equipment?
1: Well, you know, to be honest, uh, it was, um, I've always been a woodworker. I got into doing, doing construction actually before I got into college, um, and, uh, worked my way through college doing woodworking, decided I didn't want to live anywhere else and, and I was in the construction already, and so I just kind of stayed there. Um, you know, about the late 80s, by then I was shooting longbows, and I had transitioned from a recurve to a longbow, which at you know, in the mid eighties that was a tough, that was a tough transition. I didn't know anybody that shot longbows. And then going from a longbow to a self bow or to or at first it was all wood bows, wood composite bows. Um again, I didn't know anybody in the in the late 80s that was doing it, but uh being a woodworker and knowing a little bit about things. Um, you know, I, I just started messing around with it. My boys were young at the time. It was something I could do at home with, uh, I didn't need a whole lot of tools. I had the tools, but I didn't need a whole lot of tools to do it. And, uh, we, we did a lot of by guess and by gosh, kind of learning, you know, and, uh, you know, it took me a couple, two or three years to get to where I thought I had a bow that was heavy enough that I could hunt with. And, um, from that point, then, um, you know, the traditional Bowyer's Bible started to come out and, uh, Primitive Archer magazine. And, and so, uh, um, and then 10 years later, you know, the internet started and, uh, by then I was, uh, going gangbusters. but, uh, Dick Robertson actually sent me my first Osage stave and, uh, Just in the mail one day, he knew I was struggling along along with uh, building bows, and I made a decent bow out of it. And uh, once you get that first success with a self-bow, it's just real addicting. You know, there's just nothing like building your own bow and then taking game with it.
0: Man, that's awesome. Uh, Yeah, you came highly recommended to the podcast by several of my good friends, uh, Carson Brown of Echo Archery being one of them. And I'm actually going to be building my first uh, self-bow under Carson uh, uh, later this fall. I'm really excited about it.
1: Yeah, he's a, Carson's a real craftsman. I, uh, yeah,
0: I like to say,
1: I, you know, I build hunting bows to hunt with. There's a lot of guys that build a lot nicer looking bows than I do, but uh, my bows are very functional and they work and that's, um, I don't, I don't build them to sell them. I, I've given a lot away, but, uh, um, for the most part, they're just made for myself and, uh, and, uh, and then the people that, that I teach also to build bows.
2: So, uh, reading your book, it sounds like kind of your yearly ritual is you build a new bow every winter. Is that how you usually do it now? Yeah, typically I'll
1: build a half a dozen bows every year. And then, uh, um, and a couple of those will be helping other people build bows, also. But uh, I'll always have. It seems like every year I'll have one or two new bows to hunt with that that next season, and um, it's just a matter of choosing whichever one. But sometimes I'll hunt with the same bow for for a few years. I, I've done that a co- a few times. Um, but I have a wall full of bows that are, <laughs> you know, retired. <laughs> and I say retired. I can I can pull them off of the wall at any time and hunt with them. So. Is osage um, uh, your favorite wood? It really is, you know, I build bows out of osage and, and yew and choke cherry and vine maple and um, there's a lot of good bow woods and you can make a good bow out of just about anything but osage is uh for me it's it's the king for a reason. You can get a bow out of just about every darn piece of osage that you find. So um yeah, it's 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 just a great bow wood.
0: What, what woods runner up next to Osage for you?
1: Uh, you know, you makes a really good bow. It's real snappy. But I got to say, one of the better bows I've built is vine maple. Vine maple, especially out west and in Montana where it's drier. Um, it's a real snappy bow wood.
0: Yeah, I've been uh, cutting down vine maple uh, ever since Carson told me to. And I'm starting to put some uh, vine maple logs away to play with later later next year.
1: Yeah, just seal those puppies up and um you know, tie tie them down to get a little reflex in them um and uh let them dry out and they make great bows and it's a great wood to start with.
0: Uh that's awesome. So you you also have a couple sons that are involved in bow building and hunting with you as well?
1: Yeah, they uh both of my boys uh kind of grew up I'm I'm really blessed that they both uh grew up and and hunt with me um they uh they really didn't have a whole lot of choice i was always worried that i would burn them out before they ever got of age to start hunting because i've been so involved with uh, our state organizations and bow hunter education and and other facets of bow hunting but uh you know both of them really enjoyed they're both carpenters so they they have no problem with the woodworking part of it and uh they both, both of them have built bows and, and killed animals with them. And, uh, especially my younger son, Corey really loves, Corey really loves to bow hunt and he's really good at it.
0: How, how old are your sons?
1: Uh, Boone is the oldest. He's 31. Corey is, uh, will be 29 here in a couple of weeks.
0: Okay. And it sounds like, uh, Corey's had quite a bit of success with the self bow.
1: Yeah, I I would have to say he's probably killed 50 or 60 animals already with a self bow. He is is just an incredible shot And he, it it's not so much that we that either one of us is really uh, uh you know, I don't like the word expert. Um we just we just do it a lot. That's our that's our fun thing to do. So wow. And he just keeps at it and keeps at it and he gets it done. He's he's good at it.
0: That's and awesome.
2: Whatever,
1: we have a lot of opportunity here too we're really blessed in montana to have a long season and a lot of species to chase
2: so can you run down your typical season for us like where it starts with antelope and then deer how does your your usual fall of bow hunting look well uh antelope season
1: starts tomorrow <laughs> oh awesome so august august the 15th it opens up and we'll uh you know, that's a great species for us to chase all day long. They're, they're out there, they're running around. Um, typically for us, we do the spot and stock thing. We don't sit over water holes. It's just, it's just too fun chasing them. Um, our successes, you know, probably suffers as far I guess, if you count success in, in kills, but you can go after them all day long. We have a couple of great spots where, um, where we can put stocks together. There's plenty of antelope and, uh, and then you know that you usually get a couple of weeks of that in before elk season. Elk season and uh, the general archery season opens up the first Saturday in September, and uh, elk really aren't quite feeling the rut yet. So sometimes we'll we'll go and sit in a whitetail stand and try to fill a doe tag or two. Or once in a while we'll shoot a velvet buck. Um, it can be that's one of the times of the year besides the rut that you can kill a big. A big buck is when they're still in a feeding pattern. Okay, we'll do that a few times, and then uh, and then we'll start getting out after elk. The same time that everybody else does. You know, that first second week of September, um, clear till you know the mid twenty twenty fifth, something like that. The rut so, usually peaks around the twentieth.
0: So, how many weeks do you guys have to uh, chase the wapiti? We
1: have six weeks during bow season, bow only season. And Dang. then we have five week general season too, that we can hunt with our bows. Wow.
0: Wow. So 11 weeks, uh, you could possibly hunt elk with your bow. Yeah. Uh,
1: and, and even more than that now, what they've got shoulder seasons and all kinds of stuff going on in Montana.
0: So. And how many elk can you uh, put your tag on?
1: you know, for years and years, it was one elk a year, but now I think you can get three of them. There's different tags you can buy in different units that are usually just cow tags. They're called A7 tags and, and they're really designed for keeping the herd in check in, in areas where, you know, we've got the same problems that a lot of States do. These, uh, wealthy people buying up a lot of private ground and, and blocking access to public land and creating, uh, situation where they're harboring elk herds and the elk herds are causing damage on the neighboring ranches and um it's 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 really just a mess and fishing game does the best job that they can you know they they got to provide access but at the same time they're mandated by the legislature to control the herd size so um so there's a lot of opportunities out there a lot of times you have to share those opportunities with rifle hunters but uh but our general archery only season is six weeks so and it's right
0: and do you hunt public land or do you hunt some ranches or what uh what does that look like for you during elk season
1: uh elk season it's all public land we we have hunted some ranches and some private land in the past um but they weren't um they were land that anybody could hunt it it wasn't uh it wasn't an exclusive situation we uh you know, we go up and we knock on the doors just like anybody else. And some of, some of our best elk hunt spots in the past have been areas that we actually went looking for whitetails first. And and then the elk kind of discover a hay field. And we've been there long enough that once the cows find the hay, um, they'll start moving in on a regular basis and we figure out ways to ambush them.
0: So, yeah, I've known from reading that you're definitely a whitetail is something that uh, you hold dear to your heart, whitetail hunting. And I would love to, um, you know, keep that on another subject and maybe get you back on in October or November and talk whitetails and, um, you know, try to keep, we'd like to try to keep the, the subject on elk just because elk season's upon us. And so I'd love to hear more about, do you hunt elk in the timber? Do you like open country? Are you a spot and stalker, a caller? You know, give us a, you know, a little bit about how you guys like to go about it out there.
1: We kind of, we kind of do all of the above. I, uh, any more, I don't call as much. Uh, we will call to locate more than anything and then try to work in close. And if, uh, if we have to, we'll, we'll start off really, uh, really conservative with a cow call or something. And then we'll start up in the ante from there. If we have to, we'll back off if it's a situation, even on public land where we, you know, we, we, we work kind of hard to find little isolated herds and, um, they're not being pressured too much, but uh, if we think they're going to get pressured, then we'll pressure the elk. If if we think we've got chances to stay on them, finding the elk is the hardest part. So once you find them, you 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 approach it really carefully and you watch the wind and you learn all of the tricks that you can. Um, I was a guide for 10 years uh, for bow hunters. And so, you know, I've called a lot of elk in and been in a lot of those situations. So, you know, you got to have all of the tricks uh, right. especially to get close
0: yeah so what's a uh, a typical uh um shot for you you know what kind of yardage are you looking for on an elk
1: you know i, I think on elk uh we we can do 30 yards or less okay they're, they're pretty pretty big animal and uh um, 30 yards is about the maximum on anything um, absolutely like our whitetails, about half that distance. <laughs>
0: yeah, definitely. <laughs> those antelope too. Those things are wiry. I just got oh, done hunting hunting them for my first time, and I I, I tried a few spot and stocks, and I sat over water, and where I was hunting, there was a lot of water, so they weren't really congregating. And the the one shot I got was twenty five yards, and that buck just ducked the string. Uh he, I mean, he just got right out of the way. Yeah, I
1: can't tell you how many I've. I'd missed, uh, of antelope. They're just, they're just tough. Um, but you know, you can consistently get close to them, which is something people don't think that you can do, or you can, you can get into bow range, even with a primitive bow on a pretty regular basis, if you have the right kind of terrain and, uh, um, and you hunt during the rut. And again, you know, you know what they like and, and what they're going to do. And, um, it, it's a poss- it's a doable thing.
0: Now, do they rut the same time as elk, or do they rut a little sooner?
1: They're just right about the same time as elk. You know, they yeah. they tend to peak about the same time. So if you got a uh, a few days, elk elk usually require a little bit more of a commitment of time. So um, you know, you're going to go out and spend all day. Whereas if you only got, let's say, you worked and you got a couple hours, I I've got areas near home that I can be in in 15 minutes and chase an antelope. So so it's nice to have have those
0: options and yeah and... i have that for uh roosevelt elk here on the oregon coast i can get off work and well right now i'm working where the elk are at so i can pretty much just uh clock out and grab my bow and i'm 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 bow hunting yeah yep that's awesome well hey could you tell us uh one of your favorite um elk hunting stories you know maybe mm-hmm. something with you and your sons or uh you know anything off the top of your head we, we love a good elk hunting story
1: Well, I got to say the favorite, uh, story that I have is, uh, one, one year we, uh, um, we were hunting a ranch in central Montana and, uh, we had been there for, for a while and the boys kind of grew up hunting on this place. And again, that was a place that wasn't exclusive to us, but we had watched, we went up there originally to whitetail hunt and we'd watched the elk herd grow and, uh, and over time, you know, you get to learn their patterns a little bit. And we uh elk are tough to pattern, but uh um when you when you know where they bed and where they feed, it's pretty easy to find funnels in between. And so we we actually hung a couple of stands up and uh my son Corey was 16 and my son Boone had uh when he was a teenager, he was he was just a handful for me. So he hunted when he was 12, and then he kind of disappeared, chasing girls and hanging out with the friends, and And uh, he saw how much fun Corey and I were having, and when he turned 18, he decided, well, he wanted to go hunting again, and so we went up on a scouting trip, and while we were scouting the day before, we saw this herd go up and pass this tree stand um, that I had up on this ridgeline, um, probably a quarter or half a mile away from the hayfields you know back back up on this ridge and he says i want to sit there in the morning so long story short he got up uh early that morning got up into his stand and uh um shot an elk that morning Corey and i went to a different place and uh and boone was actually hunting with uh, my buddy fish and uh at what typically happens, you know, after the morning hunt, we'd meet back at camp and uh, we got back to camp and Boone was all excited and said, dad, I shot an elk. And, and, and he said, yeah, just a little one. And, uh, so as we're going up there, you know, he's talking about the shot and everything. And, but he didn't tell us how big the bull was as we get up there, we could actually drive in, it had, it required some four wheel driving, but, uh, we could drive into where the bull was and, uh, we're, we're approaching it and i'm i'm thinking boy that spike must have died in a big deadfall or something because it's sure a lot of branches and stuff sticking up and doggone if he hadn't killed a really nice six point bull you know about a 320
0: 330 bull
1: awesome yeah uh with a recurve and this is after taking it like six year hiatus and <laughs> and then that night he fills his whitetail tag and then he's done for the year. Cause he didn't apply for any special tags or doe tags or anything like that. So we loaded him up with all his meat. He was tagged out the first, first day of the season and sent him oh. home. And, uh, you know, while he was there, he said, you know, I'm, I'm glad I got him, dad, but Corey's been working really hard at, at elk. And, and Corey had been for, for all those years, those six years, you know, that Boone didn't hunt. Um, Corey had some rotten luck. He shot a 340 bull one year from seven yards, and just didn't have enough punch to get through uh, the thick part of a rib, and he would have double lunged him. And, and then he hit a cow in the elbow another year. And so uh, Boone was Boone was you know thinking it would be really nice if his brother could have shot a bull. So you know a couple days later, uh, Corey and I stayed stayed in camp and hunted, and Boone went home, and and Fish went home. And we were the only ones there, and uh, one morning, Corey actually went up and sat in the stand that Boone was in, and, and I watched a herd from down below. I was was getting ready to go up and, and sit into another, and get into another stand, and uh, the wind was wrong, so I just backed out of there. And I just got out of the way, and this bull, nice big six point, pushed a herd of cows right up past um, into the draw and up and past that stand that I was going to be in and I would have blown them out. But since I, I had gotten out of there, which was a smart thing to do, those, those elk were bedded right up on that ridge. So that evening I told Corey, you need to be in that stand if you want to shoot an elk. And so uh, we hiked in there and uh, Corey got into the stand. And the funny thing is I I was sitting in another stand across the draw because where they could come down, they were, you know, they were probably bedded a half a mile away, but they could come either side of the draw. And I could, I could watch, you know, across the draw, Corey was probably three or 400 yards away. And, uh, <clears throat> I said, Corey, I was just teasing him. I said, Corey, if I shoot a bull, do you want me to come and get you? And he said, no, I don't want you to ruin my hunt.
2: <laughs> so
1: we and, uh, and of course, later in the evening, that bull pushed his cows right past Corey and. And uh, Corey made a four-yard shot on him. You know, he was, he was on a steep hillside, so it was almost straight across, right out of his stand, straight across. Um, and the bull didn't go twenty yards and died. And and it, it's almost identical to the same size bull that Boone killed. You know, a nice big mature 320, 330 bull. And, wow. Uh, and uh, so you know, both boys killed big bull elk on opening weekend. And, um, it doesn't get any better than that for a father.
0: No, that's, that's a, that sounds like those are some memories you'll always cherish. Yeah. Uh, are there recurves? Uh, did you build the laminate bows or?
1: I did build some laminate bows. I built, uh, a, a guy named, um, Brett Rudolph who actually built bows with Jim Brackenberry for a few years lived here in Livingston and he had, uh, developed a, a little, Uh, Asian bow and uh, started a little bow business at one time, and this was probably in the early 90s, I would guess. And uh, and it petered out, it wasn't a real popular kind of a bow. And as you know, traditional bow hunting can be kind of uh, fashionable at times. People are liking this bow one year and then they're liking this other bow year another year, and um, you know how that all that goes. So, yeah, anyway, uh, after several years, I, Brent and I became friends. We were both teaching bow at the same time. And, and, uh, I approached him about, uh, you know, doing some more bows. And I said, you know, you probably can sell some of these. We just need to change the marketing up a little bit. And so we renamed it the sheep eater. And, uh, and it was a, a real kind of a radical short little 52 inch, uh, recurve people look at it and think it's a toy, but it, it really is a fast shooting little recurve. But, uh, and then we did, a, we played with a couple other models, but it didn't last real long. Brent's Brent's sons were both in the army at the time and, um, they'd got back from Iraq and they were stationed in Virginia. And so he ended up moving back East and, and that kind of went the way I really didn't want to be in the archery business. Anyway, I, I had, a, I had had a chance to, uh, to take over another friend of mine's, uh, custom bow business. And I turned it down and, um, I dabbled in making quiver caddy things, which, uh, you'd mentioned, you met my buddy, Tim Roberts. He, I gave that thing to him. I just didn't want to be in the quiver business. I, I didn't want to make something I loved into a, a job. So
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: Everything I've done has been, it's never been for the money. It's just been for the, for, you know, a chance to give back to the sport.
0: It sounds like you've done a lot of that. Um, tell us about some of the organizations that you've been involved in uh throughout the years
1: um Of course i you know i I belong to both of the state organizations, the Montana Bowhunters Association and the uh, traditional bow hunters of Montana. Um, I've been on the board and I've actually served two terms as President of both of those organizations. Um I've been involved with the National Bowhunter Education Foundation. I'm a regular member of PBS, a uh, member of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, which is a great organization. Um, various state organizations, you know. It, um, I've been with doing the music CD is really kind of a unique thing, and I do a slideshow of Montana when I uh, I play those songs, and it, it's really popular at banquets. It's something the wives really like and the kids like. It's not it's not some bow hunter up there preaching about how to, how to bow hunt, how to, how to kill elk or how to, how to do this or how to do that. It's just me singing about uh, bow hunting stuff and showing, I try to limit the hero pictures to, you know, mostly kids. And, um, and it's mostly just shots of the mountains and stuff. And it's really, really a popular show. And I've got to go all over the country and into Canada doing that. And uh, so I've been members of a lot of different state organizations over the years. Um, but uh, I, I think being a member of your, your, uh, your state organization is probably the most important thing, and everybody should try to be a member of the, their own state organization. And then groups like uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers really does a great job of, of uh, preserving the opportunity for us by preserving the access and the, uh, the quality of the public land.
0: A- absolutely. Are you going to be attending their uh, rendezvous in Boise, Idaho this uh, spring?
1: Um, I don't know. The, I I may I may not. I actually uh, did my my little thing at their very first rendezvous in Missoula. So,
0: okay, uh,
1: I've been been to one or two events with them, but uh, I, I get I get asked to go to so many of them, I get kind of burned out. On
0: <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. So yeah, uh, Montana has a really awesome. Uh, traditional bow hunting scene. It seems uh, the r- really good, rich uh, history in bow hunting, and I'm really impressed with your guys's ability to keep technology uh, at a minimum. minimum uh, you know, this far. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit?
1: <clears throat> well, you know, I I never really intended to get involved in that stuff, but I wanted to know what was going on, and so. Um, one year I decided to run as an area rep and I got on the board of directors of the Montana Bow Hunters Association. And, and then one thing led to another and eventually, you know, I got roped into being president and I said, okay, well, that's fine. I've always been the kind of person that really encouraged debate. And uh, I think debate can be done respectfully. I think, uh, you have to have all sides of the issues to make good decisions. You can't be afraid of bringing things up. And, uh, And there's a proper way to represent the membership and and give them a voice, too. And um, so I think I always brought good leadership qualities um, to the table when I was involved in them. And fortunately for us in Montana, I've had the best role models, you know, that I can imagine. Um, uh, Greg Munther and Dick Robertson and, you know, all of the Bowiers that have been involved before me. And um, we just have a real proactive group of guys that kind of think out of the box they try to tackle situations ahead of time before they, before they come to fruition. And, and, you know, I, I learned a lot from them and they're not afraid to make those personal contacts. I think the the other big thing that Montana has going forward is it's a it's really a small state. Everybody seems to know everybody, or, you know, or some, you know, somebody who knows somebody, and it's just not a big state. You know, we just barely passed the 1 million mark and, uh, for a big state that's not many people and and so our state politics is really still kind of a small town affair i mean you get to know the representatives you, you you meet the governor you shake hands with them you know the fish and game commissioners and you know how they do business and you know there's a dirty ugly side of the politics that's not fun and then there's a there's a fun side where people really do care about it and uh you you have to be able to stomach that. You get burned out real easy, but uh, you know we're really fortunate in Montana to be able to take on on some of those things and uh, and then persevere.
0: Do you guys get a pretty good turnout for your guys as uh, a traditional uh, bow hunter uh, of Montana? Is, it, is that what it is? Traditional bow hunters yeah. of Montana? Is that...
1: Yeah, our traditional bow hunters of Montana group. Uh, we, you know, we have a hundred to hundred and twenty. People that show up for the banquet—that's the paid banquet tickets. There's more people that show up and don't attend the banquet, but uh, it's a good turnout. It's not is uh, the the traditional bow hunters of Montana really is uh, the traditional guys really are the movers and the, sh- and the shakers in the state. We have a pretty laid-back banquet. It's you know we're we're all visiting friends. A lot of us are PBS members. You know we've got. Uh, um, or or ex-PBS members um so it it's almost a who's who bank type of a banquet Don Thomas and um, a lot of guys frequently show up at those things and uh um we you know we we think out of the box we're uh we recently just lost the lighted knock uh, battle here this last year and it was because um the the other organization the Montana Bowhunters and I'm a life member of both of them and part of it is uh is because when you get involved you got you get you can't be afraid to stand up and 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 say your voice and uh, I think we kind of let the NBA down because we became political with the TBM and uh, when we did so it kind of created a void for some of the tech guys to get in there and change things that we had done 15 years earlier and uh, and they really wanted lighted knocks in the bow season and Um, It just barely passed their membership and they got it passed through the fishing game commission. They were able to make those arguments um, that they, they were something that really wouldn't hurt the quality of the seasons. Now, right away, we, I know I, you mentioned to me and I, and I've already heard it too. There's already a lighted knock with a Bluetooth in it that you can use as a tracking device. And this, the first season since they passed them hasn't even come, come about yet. So
0: <laughs> it's almost like it was. Uh, Oregon just passed it, also just barely. They fought tooth and nail, and uh, TAO uh, worked real diligent to to keep that from happening. And it seems like as soon as they got it passed, uh, and you kind of you're like, okay, light it, knocks. Hopefully, this will be harmless. And then they have a tracking device in there. I mean, man what's next
1: it's always something and it just continues to be so and uh, um, you you have to draw the line and you know i i know uh for years and years we we always heard well you know we got to get along we got to respect everybody well we do but there also gets to be a point where you have to recognize that what traditional bow hunters do is different than what other bow hunters do and and there's nothing wrong with calling out other hunters and saying you know what I know it's legal, but, you know, there's a better part of you that says that it's not ethical. And you know that people aren't, they don't look at it the same way. Um, hunters hunters aren't viewed the same way. When I was a kid, a bow hunter was something special. I mean, those guys, they thought that they did it the hard way. Nowadays, what people's idea of what bow hunters are is, is totally different. Um, I i was talking to some people you know, back in the mid-90s, we defeated muzzleloader. Muzzleloaders tried to get a season in, inside of our archery season three different times, and we defeated them every time. It was actually a fish and game commissioner who has the ability to put it right into the agenda and send it out to public comment, and we defeated him from getting a muzzleloader toehold in our bow season. I don't think we could do that today with as far as the technology has come. He uh bows are much more efficient than the muzzle loaders. Were yes at, they are. And and of course muzzle loaders have come a long way too, but uh you know it's not just bow hunting, it's it's everything and it's well, all technology.
0: It's the I I fear that the battery operated devices are going to replace woodsmanship. And uh it's going to become this lost art this lost skill, I should say that our younger generation, you know, even younger than I, um, aren't even going to understand. I mean, they have battery operated wind checkers now. I mean, what happened to just putting a little, uh, uh you know, a little powder in the air or picking up, uh, uh I, I was with a young bow hunter and I'd picked up a, uh, some grass and threw it and he says, what are you doing? Checking the wind. Mm-hmm. and it, uh, they've got a battery operated device that does that now and uh, it just seems, it's it's kind of sad that uh, that's where it's going with this um, lighted knocks and uh, battery lit uh, sights on their bows and uh, all, all these battery op- operated devices it's so uh, getting far from bow hunting. Uh, we talk about it in, a, in an episode with uh, Clay Hayes and Carson Brown and and i reflect on my use of technology and you know how it makes me feel and where you know i want to go from there and i guess it's just a personal choice but it it is uh disheartening at some sometimes
1: i i i agree i think it it definitely is and you know i i was kind of the last generation i think that was old enough to shoot bows and no and know what bow hunting was before the compounds came on the scene. Um, but, you know, guys your age, that's all they've known. And so, you know, we have to face the facts that uh, these, all of the newcomers to, to, uh, to hunting usually are are exposed to the technology first. And, uh, you know, we did that journey of challenge thing with PBS and Pope and Young and, and, uh, and Compton originally worked together on a definition and, I think if people start wherever they start their journey, whether they're gun hunters or bow hunters or, you know, modern bow hunters or traditional bow hunters, if they're, if they're going the right direction, we should be happy with that. Um, because that's, that's how it's, it should be. You should, uh, you should improve on your skills and then, uh, and then you improve the experience by, by practicing those skills. Um, you know, whatever happened to the, the old saying that, you uh, a bad day in the woods was still better than a day at work. Well, it seems like nowadays everybody's working more so they can buy the gadgets which keep them out of the woods from (laughs) doing all the things, you know, the the trail cameras, the, um, the Bluetooth devices on the arrows, the, uh, the range finders, you know, before range finders compounds didn't have that big of an, an advantage. Now with laser range finders, that's that's really been the big difference, I think.
2: Yeah, for um, sure, it's made the bows shorter, faster, and and uh, they don't have to guess anymore. Well,
1: that's just it. You know, guessing yardage was is, was always one of those things that uh, human beings were really bad at. Yeah.
0: To learn skill.
1: To learn skill, even yeah. even people in the military. So you had to practice, and you had to learn, and you had to, uh, um, you know, you still had to put your time in, even if the bow was easier to hold at full draw. You still had to put your time in and practice and get that depth perception but with a rangefinder, that's all gone out the window and uh, so you know all of those things really just kind of whittle whittle away you I, I just wrote a piece for Clay uh, Hayes for his blog and uh, it was called foundations and and I, I think the, the really the way to, to tackle this is to remind people, that uh, bow seasons started, you know, Saxon Pope and Art Young were inspired by Maurice and Will Thompson, the Thompson brothers. And they, uh, you know, they became archery uh, and bow hunting fanatics at a time at the turn of the century in 1900s when game populations in this country were at the lowest, the all time lows. They were, you know, on borderline extinct. A lot of animals were buffalo and, and deer and elk and and it took 40 or 50 years for those populations to come back and yet those guys inspired the fred bears and the and the howard hills and the ben pearson's into taking up bow hunting and all the guys from world war 1 who came back from the war and from world war 2 and the korean war they took up bow hunting not because they thought that they would have a better opportunity to shoot a bull during the rut or shoot a a buck or Um, That they were going to have more success at killing the kill was was the least of it. This is this is at a time even if you were a gun hunter, game was scarce in this country. Um, If you ever heard of Fred Asbell tell his story, you know um, in the early '60s in Indiana where they were happy to see a deer track um, during the season, and you know hunting was tough in those days, and those guys took. Took up bow hunting because they liked the woodsmanship. They liked being out there, and the process was that was the thing. It was the process. It was how you did it. That was the journey. It wasn't do anything you can to uh, to get the kill or shortcut it in any way. Because when you shortcut it, you just um, you just ruin it for yourself. And some people never get that. I guess it's. I always compare it to drinking water out of a, a stream. You know. If you want the purest, best taste in water there is, you go up high on the mountain and you drink the water from its source. Um, the further downstream you get, those feeder streams, that's all the technology that you got coming into it. And it and it muddies up the water. And pretty soon you got Giardia in there and you got all of this other crap. Way down below, you, yeah, it's going to quench your thirst, but it's not the experience that drinking that water up at the source is.
2: So what do you think... Is going to be the future or possibly a solution to this. I mean, do you have any? I know TAO, we've pushed for some traditional seasons and we have a couple in Oregon. Um, Have you guys talked about doing any of that in Montana or anything along those lines?
1: I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. There's getting to be so many people and so many user groups vying for the same time slot that uh <clears throat> sharing the opportunity is is just inevitable we're not going to have dedicated archery seasons And it and uh and you know modern bow hunting is not the same sport that traditional bow hunting is
0: no
1: um it's not, even, it's not even close not even close doesn't even resemble it if those guys went and lobbied for a special season now they they wouldn't get it um you know if they tried to do what the fred bears and the Glen st charles and all of those guys did Way back when to get seasons in the states, they couldn't. They couldn't do it with the with the equipment there is anymore. Um, I think what's going to happen is uh, groups like the backcountry hunters and anglers are the ones that are going to fight for. Um, you gotta you gotta protect the resource. Without the resource, you never had the opportunity. And then you have the opportunity. And then and then what you do is you gotta recognize that we're different. In Montana, we decided here recently what we're going to do is we're going to start a little thing called self-limiting and we're going to start collecting data on ourselves on traditional bow hunting. and i and i don't know where it's going to go what it's going to do but if you collect data people are going to want to see it they're going to want it it could backfire on us well we're yeah. to, we're working we're on doing
2: similar it. things i don't know if we it's should right say exactly what they are but we're kind of working on the similar similar things for the data um,
1: yeah. So, uh, I mean, we want to do this and then, uh, and make it cool to do it. Self-limiting, we're going to call it. I don't know. And, uh, and it's just to distinguish ourselves as, as different. So perhaps in the future, who knows when, maybe 10, maybe 20 years down the road, um, when bows get so efficient that they're, and they're already to that point where, yeah, I think uh, we're there. where the statistics are equal to gun hunting dis- statistics, they're going to lose those special opportunities. Everything's going to be lumped into one big anything goes season. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to say, well, not us. Don't, don't look, don't uh, lump us in with those guys. We're
2: different. Yeah. And- I'm hoping that'll happen sooner
1: <laughs> because
2: <laughs> you know, like I, a lot of the guys I hunt with still hunt with compounds and, um, you know, I apply all over the West Um, -hmm. you know, have been since I started working when I was 19, 20 years old, we have a lot of general over the counter stuff here in Oregon, but I like to go explore and everything. And, and back then guys, weren't going to waste 10 preference points. Most guys, unless they were diehard bow hunters, aren't going to waste 10, 12 preference points to go, you know, on a bow hunt, say, you know, wherever, because they're like, man, you know, I might not get one, you know? And now. You got all the hunters that are looking at that as like, well, I can go on a bow hunt. That's easy. I just pick up a bow a few days later, I'm driving nails out to sixty, and then I can hunt them during the rut. So the bow hunters have already lost a lot of opportunity in those areas. Like all those we used to draw, you know, tags in Nevada for deer every couple years. I mean, now it's every ten years. So it's already happening all across the West. And and my friends that that hunt with compounds and have been applying with, they realize it too. I mean, I think it's getting to a point where even, even a lot of the diehard compound guys, at least the guys that I know and talk to when I bring up the idea of, Hey, you know, what about making some more traditional seasons and getting it back to where we can give more opportunity to everybody. So, you know, yeah, you might have to go to a garage sale and pick up a, fifty dollar old recur, but you can be out hunting instead of waiting to draw a tag somewhere
1: yeah yeah and i think that i think it's going to continue to be that way it's going to be trying to capitalize on opportunities by distinguishing ourselves as different and uh well
0: um, you know rob well robert uh Friends don't let friends hunt with compounds. You're not a you're not a very good friend, Robert. <laughs> yeah, I work I
2: work on them, but it's a it's a hard battle. But those same guys, and and this is where this is where I don't agree with some of some of you know the traditional guys' idea. Like, well, if if they're a super ethical hunter, they'll just they're going to limit their shots. They're not going to shoot very far. Well, they can shoot those things a hundred plus yards and they can shoot them better at 100 yards and i can shoot at 25 you know like so i don't blame them for shooting that far and and i feel like there's a, there's a small amount of us out there that are going to take the hard road and those are the pbsers that you know the tao guys us you know but that's a small part of the human population the rest of the human population is going to take advantage of whatever opportunity they have To make it easier. I mean, that's why we all drive cars instead of still ride horses, right? I mean, that's the way it works. So if you, it's sad that you have to do this, but if you limit them and say, well, you have to use this bow to go hunt this season, I don't feel like they're going to be super angry. I feel like they're going to go, okay, I'll go do that, you know? And, and, And I know some guys are like, well, that'll never work. That'll never work. Well, we did it you know, the, the trout creeks is a traditional only hunt. I don't know any compound guys that are, that are complaining about it. I know some compound guys that picked up a recurve and went down and hunted it. And now they're recurve guys. I mean, you're one of them. So I, I I feel like that's kind of the way we need to go. And it's just, you know,
0: I mean, I hear what you're saying, but we bow hunting bow hunters were supposed to be that select group that. You know, we were those guys that, yeah, it, it's not uh, a matter of if we get a kill in, or it was the way we did it, and and now it's just available to anyone that goes into a pro shop. I mean, you can pretty much pick up a compound and go hunting the next day, and that I don't sure. think that these these uh, we were supposed to be low impact, and having these these generous seasons can't last forever. I mean. They, they were put aside for a, a low impact weapon and the adjustments are going to be made. And, and the guys that are actually bow hunting with bow and arrows, we're the ones that are going to suffer if we don't get proactive and separate ourselves, just like muzzleloader guys have separated themselves from rifle. It doesn't mean we can't all get along, Exactly, um, but it's just not the same.
1: Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm not against any kind of legal hunting at all. I mean, yeah, me neither. Legal and there's a season. I'm, you know, hunting is a is a, It's great. It's a great way to expose you know for people to get out in the outdoors. There's a lot of people that never get out in the outdoors. But being bow hunting specific and and specifically traditional bow hunting, we do. We have to. It's about time we start separating ourselves from modern bow hunting. Yeah. Um, just for that. I won't even say likelihood because I think it's, it's, uh, it's bound to happen. You know, manufacturers are just, we didn't create both seasons to be a marketing opportunity, but they're, they're marketing themselves right out of their opportunities. And, you know, we need to protect ourselves. And the way to do that is to, you know, to start uh, shining up our image and collecting the data that we need and, um, and having that available when the time comes to to fight for uh, for our own rights and our own uh, opportunities, which you know rightfully those were ours to begin with. That that's what uh, that's what they were uh, established for. So for
0: I sure. couldn't agree more. And what uh, Robert was referring to is in Oregon we have a uh, traditional only bow hunt for mule deer uh, in the Trout Creek Mountains, and that unit is set aside. They have a rifle season in there. Uh, it takes about 14 years to get the rifle tag, and then the only other hunters that get to go in there are trad guys. We get it; we can go in there every year. Um, it's a draw tag, but it's a guaranteed draw, and it acts as your general season deer tag to boot. And that that was a tag that I had gotten a recurve, and I'd been invited to go hunt there, and I was on the fence, but I had to put in the time to learn to shoot the weapon so mm-hmm. i could go to this unit and that's what did it once i got efficient i sold the compound it was like i don't need the compound no more and just having that uh that unit set aside i i think if we could get more of those in the western states it could expose some of these guys uh over to shooting bow and arrows
1: oh i i think so too and i and I and I think if we can convince people, you know, the I think the, the biggest hurdle with traditional bow hunting is uh, is the mental thing. It, it's uh, it's confidence. People just don't have confidence that they can do it, and they they really can. It's just it's just self control. It's discipline. Anybody can be accurate at five yards um, with the bow. So you know, if you can pull the darn thing back and and let go at five yards, you're going to hit a pie plate pretty regular. You can yeah. limit it in the field at five yards and hey i gotta tell you we shoot a lot of deer at less than 10 yards
0: um, <laughs> yeah and and i could tell you like touching into the self-bow thing even when i was shooting a recurve at first i had this notion that oh a long bow that's that's gonna be a lot tougher and then when i switched to long it's it's not really and it's then different. i and and then wood wood arrows i finally made the switch to wood arrows you know it took me a while but i did it and I don't know why it took so long. Wood arrows are so awesome. They're so forgiving. They're so quiet. And I shot a self bow recently and I thought, oh, that's another huge step. It's not. Self bows, if they're built properly, have a good tiller. They shoot wonderfully. Yeah. Um You know, the journey for
1: me was exactly the same, going from a recurve to a longbow. I didn't know anybody that shot a longbow. And uh Um, You know, I had a custom bowyer in Bozeman that talked me into it, and uh, I got one, I'll tell you, that first year, and and I didn't have a lot of money in those days. You know, I'm raising two little kids and and a wife, and I barely can make my house payment every month. And, uh, you know, I saved up money and got a spare because I didn't want to lose that long bow. And then I started whittling self-bows, and it took me a few years again, but it was the same thing, the wood arrow thing. It was just a mental hurdle that you have to you have to get past and you realize you know and it shouldn't be that hard because you know that people have been killing animals for 10,000 years with sticks and stone points i mean right. it shouldn't be that hard to realize
0: but what uh, is what does your guys's arrow uh setup look like out there you and your sons what are you guys shooting for broadheads and, and arrows and fletching and
1: you know, we, we shoot a variety of broadheads. We've, I've shot grizzly broadheads for a lot of years. I was when, uh, Dr. Ashby first came out with the first report that again, that that custom bowyer friend of mine was Rocky Miller. He would, he, um, my wife and I had a print business, uh, in the mid eighties, um, that kind of supplemented the construction business. that was so slow. And, uh, And, and so we got permission from Dr. Aspie to reprint his first, his very first study. And, um, the grizzly broadheads at that time were, you know, that was, that was where they first stood out. And I shot those 190 grain grizzlies for a lot of years. And of course my kids, I started them off on Zwickies because um, Zwickies just penetrate so easy. They're, they're like a hot knife and butter and, and they've been around forever and they're easy to sharpen. And, uh, Um, you know, nowadays we shoot, you know, a a good sturdy two blade on elk and we'll shoot a three blade for deer because, uh, we, we, we typically shoot 60 plus pounds. Um, my son, Corey shoots probably 70, 75 pounds anymore. I used to shoot 70 pounds, but I like about 65 pounds anymore. Um, that's enough to shoot through any deer. So we like that extra blade, um, I guess our big mantra is two holes are always better than one. So we want to make sure we're getting enough penetration to get two holes in an animal for blood trail purposes. But, uh, um, you know, an extra blade up on a deer makes a, makes a big difference on antelope, on on bears, the same thing. Um, but we like a two blade on elk just for that extra penetration.
0: Are you still shooting the grizzlies or?
1: I, you know what? I, uh, I went up to Alaska and went moose hunting and, uh, back then this is in 99 and i i bought some rib techs 190 grain and i killed my moose with a rib tech and uh i killed my last bull elk with a rib tech and i'm i just like they, they sharpen easier than grizzlies for me well they're out of business now but i recently uh the guys they were made in Australia and I, and I emailed down there and bought a hundred of them. So I've got a lifetime. <laughs> supply.
0: Yeah. They were selling great those.
1: grit, uh, rib techs, but I've got Wenzel woodsman's and we, you know, we tend to, we've been been using, uh, bodkins just because they're cheaper. We go through so many, of them, <laughs> but, but, uh, there's nothing wrong with bodkins. They've been around forever and ever. You can get them shaving sharp and they put a good throw hole through a whitetail. So,
0: uh, how about shafts? You, you using Doug furs or cedars? Or
1: we've used uh, a lot of cedars over the years. I've used a, some Dug fur. I went to lodgepole for a lot of years. I just liked the the straightness of the lodgepole a little bit better than uh, um, Dug fur uh, for a lot of years. Now Sherwood shafts it does a great job, but uh, um, you know, early on it was uh, it was. You know, back in the, the late 80s, early 90s, it was tough finding really good shafting, um, especially in a higher spine. And I was shooting 70 pounds, 72 pounds with my longbows in those days. And
0: um, Do you think so, that that's uh, why wood arrows kind of lost popularity because the uh, quality shafts just kind of went away for a while?
1: Well, the market did. I mean, there wasn't a lot of guys hunting with traditional stuff in the 80s, um, we would go to a shoot and this is when 3d shoots were just getting going um and there might be 200 shooters there and there would be four guys shooting traditional bows out of all of those guys and uh you know there just wasn't many guys shooting traditional in the 80s and so there wasn't much of a market for it but uh as you know as traditional grew through the 90s then the sources for shafting uh grew quite a bit now with uh And, and, you know, we've played around. We're all carpenters. So if I find a really good straight pine two by four, I'm cutting that sucker in half a stud. (laughs) And I'll take it home, dry it out, and then I'll cut three eighths inch blanks out of it and plane them down. And I've done that. Um, We've done primitive shafts out of dogwood and uh, um, ocean spray and choke cherry and wild rose and different stuff. Right now... Corey and I are buying shafts. We're buying Tonkin cane out of China, which is, I think, is the best deal on shafting. I should, I should be quiet about it. (laughs) You can buy 100 shafts, and you got to spine them and check them. But the quality of the cane is so good, and they, they shoot great out of self bows. And you know, I just can't bring myself to shoot in carbon. I got nothing against carbon arrows; they shoot great out of self bows. But I want to shoot some kind of wood or. Uh, primitive shafting out of myself.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I I I just went to uh, Sherwood Shafts uh, this winter, and I feel like I fell in love with traditional archery all over again. Um, it it's just it just feels right, and I, I kind of operate all of this on feeling. And,
1: yeah, it is fun in the winter time to build shafts. Yeah, I mean,
2: So I noticed from your pictures, it looks like you shoot a big feather too. Can you go over I what do. you sh- use for feathers?
1: Well, you know, back when I was started shooting those 190 grain grizzlies, nobody was shoot. They thought you were crazy for shooting that heavy of a head. Now everybody's shooting 200 grains or more. You know, yeah. that center thing is a big deal now. But in those days, you know, that really slowed your shaft down, especially out there on longer shots. And um, but that was a lot of weight forward, and <clears throat> I. I remember going out, uh, we had a shoot up at Kings Hill in central Montana. And at nighttime, we had this coon shoot, um, which I'm sure they have everywhere, where you go out and they would put up, you know, a piece of reflective tape and you use a flashlight and it was always through the thick brush. And uh, I would always take a flu flu because they came out of that bow straight and fast and they, they shot where you looked. And it just got me to thinking, you know, with that heavyweight broadhead on there, I could shoot a bigger feather than a five inch parabolics that which which was about all that was available at the time. And so I I got a young feather burner and I started buying full length shafts and cutting them to five and a half or five and a quarter. And then I just came up with my own high profile burn and uh, I haven't changed it in almost 30 years now. Wow. A
0: a four fletch or a three?
1: Just a three. I did shoot four fletch for a while with the parabolics because I wanted a little more drag on there. Um, you know, uh, penetration, there's, there's a lot of things that affect penetration, the broadhead you have on the front, but also how, how straight, you know, that arrow is flying by the time when it hits the animal. And, um, you know, the quicker when you're when you're ultra close, the arrow doesn't slow down that that quick in in uh, 15, 20 yards. And uh, so having that shaft, you know, hit the animal while it's flying straight and it's not going through its uh, archer's paradox as much, um, that really has a big effect on uh, on penetration. And and of course, when you're shooting cell bows, you you keep all of that stuff in mind. You know how efficient your broadhead is how good your arrow shaft is flying because you've got a lot more paradox. You know, those things are not typically center shot.
0: Um, Do you you put a shelf on yourself though?
1: What I shoot is it's a, it's a a leather, a little leather rest. So it's kind of like a flipper rest and it gives a little bit. And uh, I actually uh, discovered it by accident. It was a, you know, at that time when I was playing around, there was no internet or anything. I thought, well, I was shooting off my hand at first when I was building them. I and I did try the shelf thing. Um, and then I thought, you know, I should be able to paradox should solve. I don't need a shelf, but I wanted to be able to locate my hand in the same place all of the time. And I thought a little piece of leather that just sat on the top of my hand would, would give me that consistent hand location. And it would also protect my hand from the feathers and, uh, um, so I started doing that and it's 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 actually helps helps with a bad release, which I typically have all of the time. I have a bad <laughs> release.
0: Um, Who doesn't?
1: Yeah. yeah. So I'm always it seems like I'm always struggling with that. But uh you know that little bit of give in there, it's a it's a little bit of a fudge factor, I like to call it, but it uh anything like that helps.
2: Yeah, and it seems like that bad release, I'm kinda of the same way and and I've sh- I shoot five inch feathers. And I always have guys, you know, oh, it can go down to four inch or, and, and for me, the number one part of killing anything is having your arrow fly straight to where you're aiming. So I never really got that argument. I mean, I know the four to center guys go way out there, but, but, uh, like you said, at 20 yards, seeing that arrow just pop out and straighten right out. I mean, I'm a big feather guy myself, but I've yeah. had I've had some issues with animals jumping the string. Have you the does the noise seem to bother? I know at at 5 yards it doesn't matter, but at uh 20, uh you know, I'm kind of back and forth on whether I should maybe go smaller or stick with the bigger fletch.
1: We don't have any issues with yeah. the noise. You know, and it does it sounds really cool on a 3D course when your arrows sound like Robin Hood, you know, they're going <laughs> down. It's just,
0: I, I do a four, four fletch just because I like, I can see more feather with that fourth feather and the feathers are closer together and it creates more of a, um, I guess for, for my eyesight, I see, I, I see more of like a ball flying with the four fletch. I don't know.
1: And you know, people don't realize that that that's important too learning how to shoot instinctive, whether you shoot instinctive or gap or whatever, even you even though you're concentrating the spot on the animal you still see that arrow out of your peripheral vision and and so i we've always shot at least one if not all i sometimes will shoot three white feathers just because i want to see that that feather fly down down range and uh it helps in low light situations but it it also helps you learn to shoot your boat quicker you know
0: i i i concur
1: and you know one thing with a self-bow slower bows are easier to shoot accurately quicker at, you know, at, at a reasonable hunting range, you know, 20 well, yards.
0: when you can guys, see the,
1: Oh, you're going to dial in a lot quicker.
0: Yeah. Guys yeah. talk about speed all the time. Even just, it seems to carry over with the younger generation. They, they want to try to turn these stick bows into something that they're not. I mean, maybe that's the wrong way of saying it, but, um, I, I like a heavy arrow, and I notice that I, I liked, I love to see the trajectory of my arrow. And if if I get to the point where I can't really see my arrow, then my shooting kind of goes down. I like a, you know, a bright yellow chartreuse four fletch, uh, a real heavy arrow. Um, I I love seeing that come right out of the bow and watch it the whole way there. And then if I'm hunting in this thick coastal brush. I know what I can and can't get away with. I know what my arrow does.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, you know, if you're in the thick stuff, you know that window where your arrow's going to fly through and stuff. It's uh, right. It's it's great to see your arrow fly, and there's nothing better.
0: Yeah, you see these compound guys. I almost feel sorry for them. They're like, I don't know what happened. I'm not sure if I hit them or.
1: That's why they, they need
2: the lighted knocks.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, they can just like, check, check their Bluetooth and see if they hit it or not. I love it. Right. <laughs> now, they've,
1: now they've got these arrows with these white spots on them, like a white wrap or something, so they can, they can determine whether they hit guts or, or lung blood or liver or something. Have you seen those?
0: Uh-uh. uh-uh.
1: Yeah, that's a new thing, too. <laughs> like another piece of woodsmanship out the out the window
0: <laughs> yeah um i want to i wanna, we want to make uh we're going to get some t-shirts eventually for the podcast and i have want to have something that is like to the effect of uh shooting them when you can see the whites of their eyes um <laughs> there's there's just something about hearing them breathe and seeing the whites of their right. eyes i mean that's that's bow hunting range that's stick bow range
1: yeah
0: uh and I'm kind of getting away from calling it traditional archery. I've been calling it bow and arrows. If you haven't been noticing, it's just shooting a bow because compounds aren't bow and arrows. Yeah. Uh, we're hunting with bow and arrows. Yeah,
1: and they, you know, they're really good at stealing our uh, our monikers all the time too. They're, you know, the journey thing or the stick and string. They, there's nothing. No I know. Or, <laughs> Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. I don't want to get on my high horse here, but. Uh, yeah, I'll... You know. Guys, come on now! Don't be calling uh, a compound a stick and string. I mean, seriously, or a primitive weapon. Come on now, <laughs> you got you guys aren't fooling anybody. Well, hey, why don't you? Uh, could you leave us with you know a little advice on guys that are wanting to uh, uh, transition, you know, into more primitive archery tackle? Uh, you know, give us a uh, you know, you know your. Maybe uh, where, you'd,
2: where you'd start? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Well, you know, there's uh, there's so much information. I, I I gotta say the primitive part, traditional bow hunting is one of the fastest growing parts of of archery in general. The primitive part of traditional bow hunting is grow is is the fastest segment. And um, of course, when you go from one to two people, that's a hundred percent increase. So when you got less people, <laughs> that happens quicker. But uh there, there's so much information on the internet. Sites like Trad Gang um and uh Primitive Archer magazine has a has a site. You you can get on YouTube and watch things. Um and and you can you can learn now in a matter of hours what took me years to learn. And uh and there's also a lot of guys teaching, guys like Carson Brown. There's nothing like having somebody sit down with you and, and go through it and explain things. Um, there's that whole feel of the whole thing that you just don't get from watching the video or reading a book or, um, or talking to somebody online. So, you know, if you can, if you can seek out a mentor and there's guys all over the country doing it anymore um, or attend something like we just had that self bow jamboree
0: in Montana in June. That sounds um, like that was a big hit.
1: That was a huge hit. That was a big thing for us. Um, but they have that one in Oklahoma. Oh, jam. Those guys will, they, the, uh, those are the guys that came up and helped us. Those are Oklahoma Self Bow Society. They do OJam every year, and they'll teach hundreds of people how to build bows. Uh, in Missouri they have MoJam, which has been going on for a long time. Washington does a thing. I think theirs is mostly with kids. Wisconsin has a has a primitive bow uh, building weekend. Um, you know, a lot of the state organizations. If people are not, if they become a member of their state organizations, then they can. Uh, they can get together with other bow hunters and make those contacts. They'll meet the best bow hunters, the best bowyers in the world, and and be able to um, to meet up with them and learn whatever they want. It's really a you know a great resource of belonging to an organization and yeah, uh, hunters I, are I, generous.
0: I agree a hundred percent. If anyone out there listening isn't already a member of your local state organization, uh, uh, traditional archery. You guys should get involved. Uh, I met a guy out on my antelope hunt, John Sattler. I'm calling you out, John. Uh, I, I've uh, hopefully got John talked into getting involved with TAO. Um, you know, you don't have to be alone in traditional archery. There's a whole bunch of brothers and sisters waiting with their, with their arms open, and it's an awesome community to be a part of. So, you know, uh, g- growing the numbers I think is real important, and that's something that we are trying to do here with uh, TradQuest. Uh, here on the podcast is is to you know grow the traditional archery community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know I I know a lot of people will will boycott those organizations cuz they don't like a certain personality in there or they disagree with the stance that so and so took or something. They they are, you know, those organizations are not big organizations. real easy to make a make a change by just standing up and having your say and having a little talk about it and um, if you've got a convincing argument, you can usually sway sway minds, and it's just important to be involved. and uh, And like I said, bow traditional bow hunters, especially, are the, are the most generous people. They'll bend over backwards to help you through your own journey and your own process, um, learning to build bows, finding hunting spots, hunting partners, all of that stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, with with uh, September coming, and I can smell the elk. Is there any way we can talk you out of one more elk hunting story?
1: Um, you know, the last elk that I killed, um, and it's been a number of years, I've been kind of holding out because my boys have both killed bigger bulls than I have. I, I was in a, a stand um, in, in this, again, it was, a, it was a whitetail type stand. I put a tree stand up in a, in a funnel area in a draw and uh, snuck in there in the evening and uh, I, I, could hear, I could hear some elk, you know, uh, sparring up up on the ridge above me. And uh, so I knew I was in a good area. And uh, actually, I spooked a small bull going in. And, uh, but he didn't, he didn't spook out the herd or anything. And uh, I got into my stand. And then that evening, as the elk started coming down and heading towards the hayfield, which was three quarters of a mile away, they just, it was like I was in the, the center of a giant anthill. There were just elk coming from all directions, all around me. And uh, there was a, a huge bull screaming up on the ridge. And there must have been 60 cows, you know, filing down in different lines. And then all of these satellite bulls just bugling and calling. And then, there, you know, there was a hot cow and they were chasing around. And I had a huge bull come right under me and step right on my fanny pack and go I me mean, right at the base of my tree. I couldn't get a shot straight away. and uh, and and three or four other elk within easy bow range just come by too quick and um, and then finally after there must have been 50 or 60 elk that came by me and I you know I was I've I've been in a lot of neat elk hunting situations but I I never heard so many vocalizations in my life different you know glucking sounds and um, just to be in that was such a neat experience and you know, finally there was a hot cow that somehow got cut out of the herd, and there was just a, there must have been a dozen bulls just, just, uh, pounding her. And this elk population, it's got to be one of the best bull cow ratios in the state. I think it, it was pretty close to one to one, just real limited access to for hunting pressure. And so the bulls just, you know, they died of old age in there. I, I don't know. It was just an incredible bull to cow ratio. And so this cow was out, and these bulls were chasing her, and I, I I, quit looking. I wasn't looking to shoot the biggest one. I just picked out, the like, the fifth or sixth one because there was space in between. And and as he walked by, you know, glucking his way, 15 yards by me, I shot him. And uh, he ran about 100 yards and piled up. And, um, and, and it was just such a neat experience to be in those vocalizations. I never – bugled or called or let out a peep it was just being in the right place at the right time um,
2: it sounds but, like you guys do quite a bit of tree stands um do you ever call from your stands or are you just waiting to ambush
1: no we'll call from our stands and then we do get down on the ground too and try to pressure them you you always run the risk if you've got elk in the area and they're in a situation where they're not being harassed and uh they're you know they're um they'll get into a habit just like anything and, and then it's best to if you want to hunt those those elk every day um you got to be really careful not to push them out of there because if you push them out of there they're miles away from there
2: yeah i've been hunting some private property the last couple of years and we kind of we've been doing a lot of tree stands too for that same reason you can't go yeah, out and chase got- them around every day for 20 days in a row so i'm kind of yeah. just you know, learning the tree stand game for the elk, you know, or trying waters and tried some saddles and just moving them around. I had one, one real close opportunity. I kind of messed up last year, so I'm working on it. And, you know, I, I know a lot of guys are kind of, well, you tree stand, the elk hunters are against it, but man, I love, I love sitting in a tree and ambushing an animal. It's to me, it's, I've called in bulls and, and I've done it, you know, both ways. And the deer too. It's just seeing them without them knowing you're there. There's something cool about that too.
1: There is, and and you know, it's not easy to find a good elk tree stand. They're just not. It's not like a whitetail, um, or you know, where you can predict a fence crossing or something. They could be. I mean, I mean, if they're a hundred yards off, they just as well be a mile off. Yeah, you can watch it. You're not gonna. Get
0: so, a my question about that stand placement. It sounds like you had. I mean, it sounds. Like you might have had hundreds of elk come by, Is, yeah. Probably about
1: eighty. There was probably eighty in that herd altogether.
0: That and was, so, what was your wind doing at that time? It was,
1: it was a thermal situation, so it was blowing straight down the draw. So, as they got by me, you know, a hundred yards, two hundred yards, or I don't know, I'm sure that some of those cows were picking up my wind. Um, but there was, they were just come They just all of a sudden came down, and it was like I said, it was like being in the middle of a, a bunch of ants you know they're just streaming hey. off of that both sides of that coulee and it was just really a cool situation
0: yeah that's special that's awesome and and uh you ended up taking it sounds like a pretty nice bull
1: yeah uh, you know a small six by six yeah it, it was a great bull
0: yeah that's awesome It that sounds uh sounds like a really good hunt so do you guys have uh some stands already hung for the elk season this year or?
1: No, actually, we're packing into the wilderness, hopefully. Um, I just got my knee replaced this past winter, so I'm I'm hoping okay. I can keep up with the boys, but we're going to pack into a basin that I used to hunt um, quite a while ago. Uh, fires and wolves have changed uh, the situation a little bit, but uh, there's good water in there. There's good uh, cover. Um, there there are elk in there, so it's just a matter of kind of learning it all over again it's not a, a there's not going to be huge numbers, like in some of those situations on a ranch, but definitely the chance of getting into some big bulls and because they're in the wilderness, they're just not bothered. It's, you know, four, four or five miles up the trail and, uh, um, you know, it's grizzly bear country. So it's that whole wilderness thing for us and we're really looking forward to that.
0: That sounds like an awesome adventure. Uh, the adventure is, uh, I think, you know, often overlooked i think it's a the, the biggest part of bow hunting for me is is seeking that adventure
1: yeah yeah it's absolutely
0: well that's great uh we really appreciate you taking the time out and uh talking uh bow hunting with us um we would really love the opportunity to uh follow up with you after uh, elk season and you know talk some whitetail uh, maybe meet your son Corey. Uh, I think that you guys have uh, a a lot to share with uh, the trad uh, bow community, and, yeah, we'd love to get you on again.
2: Okay, that'd be great. And, hey, uh, Mark, could you tell the guys where where they can get your book and your CD? Do you have a website set up
1: or Uh, how they can do that? You know, the book is available on Amazon.com, Tension on the String. Uh, that's probably the best way to get it. It's available in hardcover, softcover, or eBooks. And, uh, the CD there's, that's been out for a lot, a lot of years. I, uh, they can, um, they can call me. My phone number is uh, pretty easy to find. I don't know if you guys want to put that information down. I'm, you know, uh, people, people know who I am. You can get on Trad Gang okay. and P, PM me, uh, if you know my email, you can email me and, and we can work something out and get you a copy of the CD. Also, the C yeah. D. the salt of one is long gone. That's out of print. So
0: I'm definitely going to get a copy of the book. I know Robert already has it, but I'm looking forward to getting it and getting, getting it read. That sounds uh, uh like definitely a good read.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a compilation. There were a lot of, a lot of them were printed in uh traditional bow hunter magazine and, uh, but there's some there's some fresh chapters in there that never were printed, and uh, and then we're working on another book. I'm working on another book, so we'll hope to have it out, you know, in a year or two.
0: Very good, very good. Well, I look forward to talking some whitetail and a uh, follow up on your guys' elk season. Uh, you yeah, know, maybe uh, October will get you back back on here. Alrighty. All right. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate having you.
1: You Thanks. bet. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mark.